Hey everyone, welcome to Stories from the Influencer Economy. Thanks for joining us this week. This is Ryan Williams. Stories from the Influencer Economy is a podcast where I talk to creators and entrepreneurs, people launching the next big thing online. Very excited for this episode with Jonah Carey. It's number 30. Met Jonah a few years back at a sports blog conference, and then once I launched the podcast, he was one of the early, early guests that I wanted to have on. I'm happy we finally got him. Jonah writes for Grantland.com. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, as well as an early podcaster. He started back in 2009. Love talking to Jonah. This is a really fun interview. He's a nice guy, a great conversationalist. So can't wait for everyone to hear this episode. Definitely, if you're on iTunes, please leave a review. We'd love to hear what you think. You can always find us at InfluencerEconomy.com with all the archives of the past shows, from Freddie Wong to Troy Carter to Willie Geist, as well as you can email me. Love hearing from listeners. InfluencerEconomy at gmail.com is the name on the email. So without further ado, welcome Jonah Carey. Jonah Carey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Are you uh, in Denver now? Uh, yeah, I've been living in Denver since January of 2012. Okay, cool. Well, glad to have you. It's uh, bright and early in Southern California, and I uh, want to have you on for a myriad of reasons. Um, I wanted to start off just reading your resume. You're a, you're a writer, podcaster, and a, uh, at Grantland.com, you're also on Baseball Tonight, and I think you're most known for, at least in my world, is an author, and you wrote the New York Times bestselling book, The Extra 2%. How Wall Street Strategies Took a Major League Baseball Team from Worst to First. And you recently wrote, Up, Up, and Away, The Kid, The Hawk, Rock, Vladdy, Pedro, Legrano Orange. I mean, this is the longest title ever. It's amazing. <laughs> um, UP, The Crazy, Busy Business of Baseball and the Ill-Fated but Unforgettable Montreal Expos. And that's uh, near and dear to your heart as you are from Canada. Um, so going with all of that, uh, we'd love to talk to you about your, your early podcast days. Mm-hmm. And uh, funny listening to them now because I did even more research for the show. That you used to say for your first few episodes that you weren't sure you were going to continue doing it, <laughs> and uh, you said, "Well, this is the fourth episode, and maybe your last." Like, what what was your impetus starting in podcasting? And can you like take us through when you you first began? Yeah, I want to say that my first one was in '09, something like that. It was a while ago, um, before well before I joined Grandland. And, uh, the thing is I had a lot of people in the industry of journalism or, you know, or things peripherally related to journalism are willing and able to do things for free. And, um, I came to the industry a little bit differently, at least in terms of the sports angle. I was a working journalist, a full-time working journalist getting paid for my work when I was, 20. I was in college, pretty much had a full course load, and I was also working for a local newspaper, the Montreal Gazette. Um, so I didn't come up as a blogger or, okay, I'm going to do this and this, and, and then maybe I'll start to get some assignments and, and we'll see what happens. I was a professional journalist right away, and it was the only thing I wanted to do for going back to when I was in high school. I knew it's what I wanted to do. I uh, busted my butt to get it done. You know, I did internships. I went through the very traditional journalism school way. This is a while ago. It's like the late 90s. What school was it? Uh, Concordia University in Montreal. There's two uh, notable English language universities in Montreal. One is McGill, which has a reputation outside Canada. Everybody knows McGill. McGill does not have a journalism program. Great school, no journalism program. Concordia is a a pretty good school, but has a great journalism program. So no problem. That's where I went. So um, 
after that, it was I graduated in 1997, and I realized that there, you just what I want to do doesn't really exist. What I wanted to do was I wanted to write about sports without being a beat writer, uh, full time, somewhere. And if you wanted to be a columnist, that was not available to you. You just couldn't. Oh, I'm 21. Hire me as a columnist. That wasn't an option. The internet was coming up. That was an option, but there weren't really many people that were doing that. There were only two people that were really doing that the way that I wanted to do it. One was Rob Nyer. One was Bill Simmons. So, okay, things go on, and I become a business writer, basically, because it's not available to me in sports, and I, I just don't want to cover high school field hockey for 10 or 15 years or whatever, and I still want to be paid as a working journalist. So I, did, I was a stock market writer for Investors Business Daily for more than a decade, long, long time. And uh, were, were you in New York City? I was not in New York City. I, I've never lived in New York City. I lived in Los Angeles when I got that job. They're based out of L.A. Um, basically, out of college, I moved to D.C. I had two jobs. One was working as a community newspaper. That was my first job in the States in a place called Reston, Virginia. Oh, I know Reston. I'm from D.C. Oh, there you go. Sure. And then uh, you're, you're out there. We lived in Connecticut and Van Ness for two years. Oh, nice. I lived in uh, right, right by there in Cleveland Park. Oh, well, sure. That's next door. Up yeah. on Stoop, man. Yeah. To- Nanny O'Brien's best dive bar in D.C. Uh, that's where all that good stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I like D.C. a lot. And um, did that, worked at the Washington Business Journal for a year. That was in Arlington. Um, and then moved to, D- moved to L.A. when I was 24, applied to six places. Uh, two business journals, Wall Street Journal, uh, OC Register, L.A. Times, and IBD. I think three or four of the six places offered me a job. Actually, what I really wanted to do for a living at that time was I realized that I couldn't quite do the sit on my high horse and talk about sports thing. And now I had a little bit of business expertise because I'd worked for Washington Business Journal. I wanted to be a sports business writer in 1999. So I went to all these papers and I said, hey, I want to be a sports business writer. They said, that's not a thing. I said, I know I'm going to make it a thing. They said, no, no, it's not a thing. There's no, there's no, what are you talking about? I said, stadium deals, da, 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 but it'll be interesting and fun. And, uh, we'll have a lot of fun with it. Business is a huge part of sports and, uh, they go hand in hand and you can absolutely make a career out of this and it'll be a great thing and I'll have fun with it. And they said, it's not a thing. No. So I went to IBD and I just did straight stock market stuff. Uh, a couple years later, it absolutely became a thing. Darren yeah, that's a thing. That's for a living. What I wanted to do for a living. It's- oh, no way. Yeah. Well, basically, I mean, Darren and I are different in tone. I think that he's a little bit. He's very, very corporate in his job, which right. is fine, uh, but I would have been a little bit – like I still would have brought my kind of goofy personality to it. And I still would have written it in a fun way um, while also covering the industry. And I wouldn't have been so focused on like this is the brands. Here's what's happening with the brands or whatever, which is – you know, Rovell's entitled to do it however he wants. I would have, I would have taken a more uh, – I don't know what you want to say. A big picture approach, I guess. Anyway, so that's what I wanted to do. didn't happen. Uh, worked for IBD for a while. A group called Baseball Perspective started up in the late 90s. That was not something that was a full-time job, but I, but I realized that I didn't want to give up on my dream of writing about sports. Yeah, so, can, you, can you actually explain Baseball Perspective? Perspectives? Baseball Perspectives is essentially an online think tank in which people write about baseball. <clears throat> it was started by five or six guys um, who used to be on something called Rec.Sport. Rec.Sport is like early internet message boards. They existed in the mid to the late 90s. Or that's when they were really prominent. Lots of people used to arguing with each other on the internet, basically. Very, very smart people. Uh, very smart people. Um, I actually ended up joining this group. And if you think about who came out of that group, so first of all, Nate Silver came out of that group. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody knows who Nate Silver is. He runs 538. Was it Pakoda? Was that where he created that? A thing called Pakoda. Uh, but the founders of the group, a guy named Gary Huckabee, who's a um, uh, uh, consultant, I guess you could say, in baseball. 
uh, Joe Sheehan, who's a prominent writer, Randy Gisarelli, who works with me, who's a prominent writer, Christina Carl, who is a prominent writer for ESPN. Uh, there's a very um, well-known meteorologist actually named Clay Davenport. People were doing this as kind of a hobby. They did it on the side, um, and I joined. Did that for a while. Did you work? Did you work with Nate directly at all? Uh, yeah, I worked with yeah Nate. Nate and I. Yes, I mean we had it was a very small group, and uh, Nate was, the, I guess you could say the person in charge. After a couple of years, uh, Gary left Gary Huckabee, and so Nate was running, and I was. <laughs> At one point, I was CFO. I had no qualifications. <laughs> CFO. You wrote about business for a living. <laughs> yeah, but that's... You must have known something about it. CFO, uh, head of customer service, um, editor-in-chief, or managing editor of the website, whatever you want to say. I, I edited the book, and I was also a writer. I did five or six things at once because it was a small group, and I had a weird combination of skills. So uh, like a startup. Yeah, it was a startup. And I mean, it's still very lean and mean. It's been going on. This group has existed now for something like 17 years, but it's still very, you know, very quiet. Anyway. And what year did you join this? Uh, 2002. Did that for a few years. Just a la- labor of love type thing. Labor of love. Did it on the side. It started to make a little bit more money as we went along. And we put out books. We put out the Baseball Perspectives Annual. And then there was a book called Baseball Between the Numbers, which was probably my first recognizable foray into book publishing because the baseball prospectus annual does not put names on the book or didn't in the past. This had, this had my name on the cover and, uh, I worked with Nate and a whole bunch of other smart people on that. And that was different. Left that, uh, was still doing IBD, but then IBD started to fall off and I became kind of a full-time freelancer. So I was doing a little bit of IBD working for ESPN.com. And then every men's magazine you could think of, I wrote for GQ.com, I wrote for Maxim Playboy, Penthouse stuff. So uh, almost all of them. No way. Uh, yeah, and it's such a funny era to even think about existing. Like how bi- that was such a big market. It was, but I was writing sports stuff for them, you know. So yeah, sports and lifestyle stuff. So I wrote a thing about bullfighting in Madrid, and I wrote a thing about covering baseball in Japan and all this stuff. And a lot of fun, um, but it was tough. It was a lot of stress. And uh, then I got a book deal. That was the extra two percent, which was a book about the Tampa Bay Rays, and it was kind of a. Uh, a homeless man's money ball, is as, as I like to describe. <laughs> and uh, a lot of fun that did really well, was a bestseller. Um, and that kind of, uh, so right after that book deal, or soon after that book deal is when I got the podcast. So the very, very long answer to your question is, I was always hustling to work. I mean, I had a, I was, I've been, I was married the whole time. I, was, I, would, I had kids in 2009, so that became a thing. And um, doing the podcast, I realized that it could, quote unquote, uh, build your brand and be good for your uh, prospects and so forth. But I saw it as kind of a lark. I mean, I was aware of those other things. But at the time, it was like, OK, well, I'm clearly not making money. In fact, I was losing money because you have to pay for a uh, you know, hosting space. Like, I still pay money to Podbean even now, even though my podcast has been hosted by Cranlin since 2011. <laughs> I just don't want to lose the old episodes. Yeah. Um, which is strange. No, no. Those are archives. Yeah, there are archives. Exactly. And I had great guests for a guy, just a guy. Yeah. So was it Rob Nair, one of your early guests? Sorry, say again? Was Rob Nair one of your early guests? Rob Nair was one of my early guests. Well, it's funny about Nair. I mean, I mentioned that yeah. Nair and Simmons were the two people that were doing what I wanted to do for a living. Rob is now one of my best friends in the world. He's edited both of my books. Um, I kind of hired him to be like the first editor before I send it off to the publisher. And can you explain, can you explain a, a bit who he is? Yeah, sure. Rob... Rob was um, – so for people who don't know, we need to go back a second. There's a guy named Bill James. Bill James is the godfather of, of baseball stats. He was a security worker at a pork and beans factory in the 70s. When he was bored, he'd come up with spreadsheets and write little essays. 
He turned that into a book. He turned it into an empire, and now works for the Boston Red Sox. He's like, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, right. He's brilliant. Rob was Bill's right-hand man. Bill's had various assistants over the years, uh, and Rob was the first, really. And uh, he parlayed that into a job at Stats, Inc., and then eventually writing for ESPN.com. And he's continued to write online throughout. He now writes for Fox. Uh, and he's very good. He's a great guy. And uh, he became kind of a mentor of mine and then ultimately a peer and a friend and so forth. And uh, the other person, Bill Simmons, Bill Simmons runs Grandland and is one of, if not the best known uh, sports writer in North America. And uh, he's now my boss. So it's funny how these things come to be. And, you know, going back to the podcast, I think that it was just a minor part of my portfolio. Ultimately, I think that the reason I got hired at Grantland was largely the book were largely the extra 2%. People really liked it. Simmons in particular really liked it. Uh, and also my body of work at that point, I'd written for baseball perspectives. I'd written for ESPN.com. And, uh, I had a different approach because I had this business background and, uh, and I also, I'm big into stats. So I do the analytical thing, which now a lot of people, there are a lot of writers who do that. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm an experienced journalist. I know how to do interviews and, and, uh, and uh, reported stories and things of that nature. And I think that combination of skills is still relatively rare. A lot of younger beat writers now obviously have the reporting skills because it's their job. And they've come up reading people like Rob Nyer or Bill James. So they, they now have those skills too. But they might be covering the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Boston Red Sox as opposed to doing what I do, uh, which is trying to be the jack-of-all-trades, master of none, whereby I know a little bit about all 30 teams. Well, hopefully a little bit more than a little bit, but that's the idea. So the podcast ultimately – Grew and I had Nair, I had Evan Longoria, I had Ricky Henderson, I had uh, what Mike Shore, who's the um, showrunner for Parks and Recreation, and now uh, works on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Just had all this this weird combination of people. People just came on, even though I was not a significant media presence. And were you reaching out to most of these people without knowing them, or did you get connected or a, a mixture? A little of both. I knew Nair. Uh, sure, I think I just emailed him one day and I said, "Hey, you want to have?" breakfast in LA I was even though I, I was living in LA for a while I left LA but I was still traveling there a lot for work and stuff he said sure we hit it off and I invited him after that uh Ricky Henderson I think I got a press release or something even though again I wasn't a significant guy I was right I was doing some work for ESPN.com um got that Longoria was a press release uh so it just depended so and sometimes I would just you know have chutzpah and I would just email the person's agent or something and say, hey, you want to come on the show, or general manager, or whatever, and they say, okay, sure, sounds good. What was the what was the curiosity you had for the podcast? Like, what was your your goal, just as far as like the type of conversations you wanted to have? Yeah, I mean, I like talking. Um, yeah, I think the same reason that you or anybody else has a podcast, you just you're intellectually curious uh, to some extent. Like, like I said, I w- was doing this for free, and uh, and although I recognize the brand building opportunities, to me, it was more an opportunity to talk and learn. I mean, I'm, the reason that I do what I do for a living. The reason that I exist on earth is because I like learning. I, I love reading books about random things to know more about them. Um, if I didn't have kids, I'd be traveling all the time. Like I, I mean, I drive a really terrible car on purpose because I just have no interest in that, but I'd rather go to another place and learn a new culture or whatever. I just, I'm very, very, very intellectually curious. So it was, that's, that's, that's why you live in, that's why you live in Colorado. <laughs> uh, I'm not exactly a prolific, uh, pie user, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it was just for me about having conversations and kind of learning how people tick and what they do and what their industry is about and things like that. And uh, more so in the old days than now, my podcast with Granlin has been really baseball focused. I've had a couple of different guests. I've heard a couple of uh, stand-up comedians and uh, Ben Gibbard, who's the lead singer of um, Death Cab for Cutie. Like I have a couple of, of eclectic people on the show. 
But for the most part, it's a baseball show. And in the past, it was I was talking about basketball and hockey and, and business and uh, the economy and education. I had David Leonhardt on, who um, was a great, he is still a great writer for the New York Times. He started something called The Upshot. Uh, and he was an education writer at the time, so we talked about that. I'm very politically engaged. So it, it was all of those things. I just wanted to get involved in all of those things and, and do it. Uh, but when Granlin came calling, my thought was, okay, I want to monetize the podcast, which is not something that's easy to do. You can't say, okay, here's my podcast. You can now buy it for me for $100,000. That's not really what happened. It was more Granlin hired me. I said, okay, great. I know you're hiring me as a writer. May I do my podcast on some Granlin network, which was starting up? And they said, sure. So they hired me as a commodity and I brought my podcast along with it. If there's an alternate, and by the way, I love Graylin. I'd love to work there forever. But if in an alternate universe, I become a free agent tomorrow and I could call my shots or whatever, then I'd want to have a podcast wherever I go. I'm doing now TV and some other things, but I am uh, still interested in carrying on the podcast format. It's uh, something that I really enjoy doing a lot. So when I, I talked to Brian Koppelman, I'm going to segue into your book now. Okay. Um, because this is all related. So Brian Koppelman, I talked to him about the moment, his uh, you know his documentary on Jimmy Connors for, for Thirty for Thirty, and then you know researching movies like Rounders, and he felt like it was a very similar skill set that he used for all three endeavors, and that re the research element of it, like how um, now that you, you've had the podcast for a while, you've been writing your book well ahead of the podcast, at least a little bit ahead of the podcast. Like, how are those skills similar, like researching your books as well as, you know, interviewing guests and like just a natural inclination to try to like find more about people and, and get to know subject matters? Yeah. Again, intellectual curiosity plays a big part. It's interesting. I mostly agree with Brian, but I will say this. Um, there's an element of extroversion that's required in certain elements of the job. And there is an element of introversion that is inherent in being a writer, and I'll explain. Um, writing is a solitary pursuit. Even if you have an editor or whatever, you're still on your own uh, with your headphones or whatever it is that keeps you distracted. And you're delving into your own world with fiction, you're way even more so. But even with nonfiction, uh, even covering something as concrete as baseball, it's, it's you against the world sort of thing. And it, it draws a lot of people who are introverted. You're not a lounge singer. You're not a CEO. You're not somebody who engages with people. You really are doing your own thing. The way that this profession has progressed over the last few years, it is a given that you should be active on Twitter. Um, podcasts are very common. If you are somebody like me who tries to do reporting as well as writing, then that involves at least faking extroversion or coming out of your shell a little bit. I'm a pretty – extroverted guy I think at this point I've sort of changed actually over the last 15 20 years it's a whole other story but um another podcast yeah and 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 with podcasts you know I, you have to engage people you have to I'm not I, I'm often I'm usually not in the room with them but you have to be willing to pick up on social cues and really put yourself out there and let that person put themselves out there and just the nature of having a conversation especially one that's going to be made public right I mean if you and I are talking on the phone that's one thing you're going to put this out there you are aware that you're out in the world. And so I, I think that that requires a certain level of, if you are an introvert or shy or whatever, just coming out of your shell to some extent, um, the best ones anyway. I think that you have to find a way to really uh, engage your guest and make it interesting for people. There are people, by the way, who do podcasts by themselves, or let's say the guest is not the major part of it. My podcast is entirely about guests. Um, I guess it, yours is too, to a large extent. It is, yeah, and I love the one-on-one -on -one conversation. Right, but there are people that are just, you know, Mark Maron or whatever. Yeah, I'm not. My intro, I try to do long intros at the beginning, like Mark Maron, everyone 
overwhelmingly 100% of the listener audience said they were uh, needed to be changed. <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, so. I don't love Mark Merritt's podcast. I have to be honest. It's not really my style. Um, so what, what was it like, though, when you, you know, Rob Nair, you have Bill Simmons, people you look up to, and then now you're working with them or becoming friends with them. Like, was, was that somewhat surreal, but also something that you expected? Like, obviously, you thought you were going to be successful, like you believed in yourself. But to have it play out like that, I mean, it's like, did you, it's like, you know, sometimes you have goals that you write down. Obviously, I, I imagine you didn't write down goals. I want to work with Bill Simmons. But as Happenstaps had it, that's, those are people that you, you know, characterize as people you look up to, but also people that maybe you emulated and ultimately became similar to. I will tell you a funny story, um, which is not a story that I've told very often, by the way. Um, my career goal. The only thing that I thought I wanted to do for the longest time was write for Sports Illustrated, the magazine. Growing up, I read a guy named Michael Farber, a great writer, who wrote about baseball and hockey, really every sport. And uh, he was a columnist for the Montreal Gazette, which is my hometown newspaper. He was an American who'd moved to Montreal in the late 70s. Uh, I was born in the mid-70s, and so I just read him throughout. Great. He's great. He even came and did a guest lecture at my journalism school, and I learned I was just I was starstruck, and it was awesome, whatever. So he went on and wrote for Sports Illustrated, and I had already subscribed. My dad had bought me a subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was literally eight or nine, so I'd read it throughout my youth, throughout my adolescence, throughout college. Then Farber joins. This is definitely what I want to do. So again, that's my ultimate goal. It's not something I've written down, but it's something I wanted to do. But I was so far off the reservation for so long, even when I was writing for Baseball Perspectives, I never had sports as a full-time job, that at a certain point, all I, I, just, I just wanted a sports writer job. It didn't really even matter where after a while. And Grantland hired me. I didn't actually sign my first real Grantland contract until I was 37 years old. I was 14 years out of college uh, by the time – I uh, joined Granlin. That's a long, long slog. I was writing for a living, but I never, when I grew up, I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be a sports writer. And so, in answer to your question about Nyer and Simmons and all this stuff, sort of not really, because by the time it gets to 2011, when I finally get the a job that I want uh, as a sports writer, it was just, you know, give me a job anywhere. At that point, like, I, I actually had uh I talked to a couple people at uh, Bleacher Report for a while, and I I never wrote for ES, SI the magazine. Actually, this is my, so this is the SI story briefly. Um, I had lunch with one of the SI editors, and I said I want to do a thing. They said, "Okay, sounds like a good idea." I went and reported on it. I'm not going to get into the details of what the story was, but I went and reported on it. Um, actually, I can tell you what the story details are. Anyway, reported on it. I submitted it. They didn't like it. They said you have to go fix it up. I reported on it some more. I submitted it. They said, listen, you've put in months on this story. We're going to pay you a 100% kill fee. A kill fee basically means we'll pay you exact, we'll pay you X percentage of the story. The standard in the industry is 20%. So let's say you get hired to do an article for $500. Uh, they will pay you $100 if they don't run it. That's sort of a typical magazine. What type of story was it? This was a story about the Texas Rangers and how, through, uh, thanks largely to Nolan Ryan, they were coming up with a new culture for developing pitchers. This was a big thing in like 2010, 2009, 2010. They never ran it, but they paid me 100% of my article fee, 100%. So if it was $500, they paid me $500 to not run it. This is my lifelong dream. Was <laughs> you reached your goals, your success. So sort of reached my goal. Call your, call your parents. <laughs> At that point, I had children, and I just couldn't say no to the money. Like, no, screw you. I want in the magazine. I'm like, okay, fine. So yeah. I ran on my website and actually did pretty good traffic, even though my website is just a little dinky uh, WordPress site. Anyway, so 
that was the SI thing. With Nyer and Simmons, uh, no, it wasn't like that. I just wanted to be a sports writer, and I didn't have any uh, thoughts about what that would lead to or whether I would develop status or have, uh, I don't know, how much, what, you know, whether it would be lucrative or whatever. It was just, can I get a job? And, uh, and I got a job, and, and that's kind of what it came down to. It was a coincidence and a fun and a great coincidence uh, that Simmons ended up being my boss. Nyer becoming my friend sort of came along uh, organically because he and I were writing in the same sphere. You know, baseball prospectus and what he did were very, very similar. And so um, we need to keep this efficient. So I wanted to, I wanted to uh, talk to you first about the extra 2%. Sure. And, uh, you mentioned your book deal was you know, a big impetus for your career and helped moving you forward. What was the process like getting a book deal as someone who's been a writer for 10 plus years and, and you had your independent podcast? Yeah, this is even weirder. So this whole, oh, I was writing about the stock market and whatever. <laughs> Again, I'll try to tell the story as, as quickly as possible as you can probably tell I like stories. Oh, these are great. We love them. Thank you. Um, so I used to post on Expo's message board. I grew up in Montreal. I was a Montreal Expo's fan. I posted on a Montreal Expo's message board in the late 90s. Uh, and I was not somebody who was used to having conversations on the internet. I'm a, I'm a sociable guy and I like being face to face or whatever and flame wars and things like that. I'm, I'm a very nice guy. I don't, I don't do well with the aggression of the internet, especially the early internet. Uh, but I went on this message board and I would kind of weigh in with my opinion and was very statsy. And this is before Moneyball. So it wasn't very common to argue about, oh, RBIs are dumb and you should look at the way this guy does this. So you, at this point you were reading Bill James' perspectives and... I was reading Bill James since I was, again, since I was eight. My wow. dad bought my first book when I was eight. Amazing. I was very into numbers when I used to carry around a little professor calculator when I was three years old. Um, love numbers, love baseball, love sports. So I'd argue about these things and half the people on that message board would be like, what a crank and a kook. Not a crank because I wasn't being mean, but just what a kook. What's he talking about? What are these numbers? Half of them would be like, well, that's interesting. I haven't seen that before. Okay. So... Fast forward literally almost a decade. I get an email in 2011, two, uh, sorry, 2007 from a guy, xx at randomhouse.com. You don't know me, says the email, but I used to be on the Expo's message board with you in the late 90s. No way. And I really liked what you had to say then. I wrote under a quote unquote pseudonym, even though I did, had no status. It was just, it was the internet. You write, oh, I'm silly boy, one, two, three. Yeah, it was like your AOL instant message. You know? yeah, like AOL instant messenger. And this guy had a name, it was like bullpen coach, and I was Jonesy Jones and whatever. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, I figured out who Jonesy Jones was. I followed your career. By the way, I'm not a full time sports writer, I'm just doing stuff on the side, but I really like your stuff. I like what you had to say then. I'm now an editor at Random House. Come write a book for me. Wow. And I thought it was a joke. I thought, well, oh, someone I mean, of my friends is pranking me, whatever. Because I wanted to write a book, but I just thought, well, I don't have any pedigree. How does one go about writing a book? Uh, that was 2007. We didn't have an idea right away. I went to New York. I met with him, uh, this guy named Paul Taunton, who's great, and uh, at Random House. And Random House was partnering at the time with ESPN Books. ESPN Books was run by a guy named Steve Wolf, who's a longtime veteran in the industry, uh, a genius, uh, the nicest guy, whatever. And in 2008, when the Tampa Bay Rays started playing really well, this guy, Steve Wolf, who had his uh, ear to the pulse and he'd been a baseball writer for a long time, was also friends with Stuart Sternberg, the owner of the Tampa Bay Rays. And he said, why don't you just write a book about the Tampa Bay Rays being terrible and then getting good? And I said, that's a great idea. So literally the offer was made to me unsolicited and the idea was not mine either. And I didn't choose the title either, by the way. That was Paul's idea. Oh, really? It was write the book, which was great. And then when the Rays book ended, just to jump ahead for one second – Paul, who I said was, you know, he's supposed to this Expo's message board. He was actually an American who went to McGill and became an Expo's fan that way. Oh, that's funny. It's totally funny. When the Expo, when the Rays book ended, he said, now we have to write an Expo's book. 
again, his idea. And I said, no, I said, I don't want to write a book about the Montreal Expos because nobody's going to be interested in a team that's been defunct for seven years and nobody cared about them then except me, you and 10 other people. So I had to be convinced to write a book about the team that I grew up idolizing. And, (laughs) you know, I've always liked sports, but there's only one team that I've truly rooted for thick and thin, whatever, not even the Montreal Canadians who obviously have a lot of pedigree because I was not as big a hockey person. It was the Montreal Expos. Even then, I had to be convinced of this thing. He had to almost tie my arm behind my back. He said, okay, well, I'll give it to this other guy. I was like, no, don't give it to the other guy. <laughs> come on, buddy. <laughs> come, on, bu- come on, bullpen guy 44. Bullpen guy 44. So um, that's how that book came to be, too. So it was all happenstance. You know, th- this is this gets into the whole Branch Rickey philosophy. Branch Rickey, one of his favorite sayings, and it was my little message on my cell phone, it was kind of my little inspirational thing for years, was luck is the residue of design, which is a great saying. You know, it means that, Yes, you need a lot of luck in life. Uh, there's no question about it. But if you work hard and you have some you know, base level of skill, then presumably it'll come to you. And I imagine that that's what it was, that I didn't – it was totally lucky that a book was dropped on my head and that another book and Grandland and all this stuff like that, uh, I would ascribe like 80% of it to luck. And 20% I'll say, yeah, you know, I probably did enough and I paid my dues and I'm, I'm 40 now and I feel like I'm just hitting my stride now. Well, you're, you're give, I'm 37. You're giving me hope. Yeah, right. No, well, hope. I mean, I'm just kidding. Career too, but you know, it takes it takes time to build things, and it takes luck. And uh, both of those came into alignment. And and you know, in retrospect, things like starting a little rinky dink podcast, it's not the thing, but it was all part of the portfolio. You just do a bunch of stuff, and you know, eventually, you probably will get noticed. I mean, whatever. If you think your blog isn't read by anybody, or this little thing that you're doing for this little website isn't read by anybody. That might be, but eventually it probably will be. The people are are paying attention. The way that Grantland started in the first place, Simmons uh, was a guy who was in his twenties and very he used to work at the Boston Herald and very frustrated. They wouldn't give him anything. He had to do crappy assignments. He quit. He tended bar. Then he decided, okay, I'm just going to go out on my own and do my own thing in his twenties. And then he built an empire ultimately. And so that's kind of how he built Grantland. I mean, he didn't hire, you know, Rick Riley away from ESPN over at Grantland. He hired. 25-year-olds, the whole site. I'm the third oldest person at Grantland, which is bananas because I don't feel that old. Um, but it's all people in their 20s or even now. I mean we've been in business three years. They're still in their 20s. Uh, they're, they're, they were people that were on they were on the rise and Simmons and the other editors of the site had a really good eye and said we want to give these people a bigger platform and a chance to do well. And, and uh, so I think so, you know, people should be reassured that if they're listening to this and they're 25 and they want to do X and they don't feel that they're going to get there, somebody's paying attention somewhere. And if they're not now, then they will by next year or next week or next month. And just keep creating and doing stuff and making. Um, and so, uh, and then one final question. So uh, actually it's a two-parter. When, so the expo book, it came, you know, fortuitously and actually David Mamet, when I first moved to LA, I've been out here about eight years now. I moved from DC. He, I went to a book signing with him, and uh, it was Godzilla versus Barbie, this book about the underdogs. And he, he signed a book of mine, Luck is for Losers, David Mamet. So <laughs> a different take on luck, but ultimately maybe the same thing that if you just put yourself in a position to succeed, then you know luck and good things can happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a matter of attribution, right? I'm just I'm I'm so despite the fact that I'm supposed to be in my industry, I'm really really not an ego guy. I can do self promotion. I can I can say, okay, I have a book out, please buy it. But I have a hard time with I'm great. Yeah. So I guess it depends on how you want to describe your or describe or ascribe your own success. Totally. And so if uh so for for the research part of up up and away. Yeah. Um, how long did it take to research and actually the extra two percent? Like it looks like you're putting years plus into researching each book. Is that true? 
each book from the time that I signed the contract to the time the book came out took about three years. No way. A lot of time. And I didn't and and uh, and I wrote down to the wire with both books, um, especially with the Expos book. The Expo, the last word that I turned in on on up up and away was less than two months before publication, which is bananas. It does not happen. Um. So yeah, about three years. Uh, the Ray's book had 175 interviews, and the Expo's book about 130, 125. Um, so a lot of it was the reporting, and it's you can do whatever you want with your book. I mean, it's I never had anybody say to me, "This is how many interviews you have to do. This is how long it should take. This is how many words or whatever." There's a certain industry standard that a nonfiction book should probably be at least eighty or ninety thousand words. I think my first contract said ninety thousand. Uh, and the Ray's book came in right at around 90 and the Expo's book came in about 110,000. And, um, but it doesn't, you could do it any way you want. And I just didn't believe in half-assing it. I just thought, well, if I have these projects and I've been entrusted to do these things and I have to go to, I have to travel to Tampa and I have to do this and talk to this city councilman, not just the backup second baseman and find all this information. And with the Expo's, it was even it was like a treasure hunt really with the Expos because now I'm just tracking down people that I used to grow up rooting for. It's all right. I just talked to Andre Dawson. Can I get Tim Raines? I just got Tim Raines. Can I get Pedro Martinez? And on and on you go. And in addition to that, it was people that were even before my time. I talked to Rusty Staub, who was a star player for the Expos before I was born. Uh, but the history of the Expos started in 1969, so I needed to have that information. Is he La Grande Orange? La Grande Orange. He is a wonderful man, super smart, great, was a great ball player. Uh, and it was really enjoyable. In some ways, my favorite parts of the book were doing this stuff that was before my time. Even before the team existed, was reporting on the conditions that led to the Expos coming into existence in the 1960s. Like I said, I was born in the mid-70s. So it was, uh, it was the learning thing. It was the intellectual curiosity thing. That was some of my favorite stuff. Obviously, I, I wrote about things that were contemporary to me. I wrote about you know, the 1994 Expos, the famous or infamous 1994 Expos had the best record in baseball. And the one year that the World Series gets canceled for a work stop. Such a bummer. Is the year the Expos were the best team. And it, you know, kind of really dealt a crushing blood of the team. And to me, and I quit baseball for about a week after that. <laughs> uh, actually, was, um, well, this is a story I've told too. But basically, I was 19 years old uh, that year in 94. And, uh, or for much of that year anyway. And, um, the Expos had the best record, and I was following them, and I went out to California and followed them, went on a road trip, and, and they were just killing everybody. They were better than the Braves, the dynastic Braves. Uh, they were better than the Yankees. They were, they, were just, they were killing it. They were smoking everybody. They were on fire. They are a very good young team. They were 25. They could have been a dynasty. And, um, you know, the work stoppage happens, and they cancel the season. And uh, I was dating this girl at the time. I was in college, just started college, dating this girl, and uh, – she knew how much I was just a diehard about baseball and sports and whatever. And I said, I'm done with baseball. I can't deal with this. I've waited my whole life for this, and, and they canceled it. This is terrible. It's a sham, a conspiracy. I can't stand it. For my 20th birthday, which was six days after the season ended, the season was canceled, she bought me a Felipe Alou 1958 rookie card. <laughs> Felipe Alou was the manager of the Montreal Expo. That's right. And was a really good outfielder. Moises' dad. Boy, Moises' dad. And this girl was not a sports fan at all. I mean, we'd met and we hit it off and whatever. We'd only been dating for a few months. Um, but she said, you know, I know you love baseball. I want to try to get you back in the fold, whatever. I said, okay, because of this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back into baseball. And uh, that girl and I got married. No way. 17 years we've been married. Now. After your own heart. After my own heart. That was, uh, that's not the reason that we got married, but it's emblematic. It was a, it was a sign. It was a sign. Um, so you got to go because you have a lot of writing to do. But um, two... Quick questions. One is, how can someone that hasn't 
someone that's not a, a Expos fan, but is a sports fan, how would you position this book and say that they should read this? Well, I think obviously the first thing is if you have that same intellectual curiosity about anything, uh, like let's say you're a baseball fan, but you're a fan of the Cleveland Indians or the Yankees or the Astros or the Twins or whatever, you would just be interested in it because you have some interest in baseball. You'd say, okay, well, this is another team, whatever. On the second level, there's the fact that this team is fascinating. Fad, there's so many characters that came through this team. So first of all, there's just some great players. Gary Carter's in the Hall of Fame. Andre Dawson's in the Hall of Fame. Pedro Martinez will is about to be after this this vote. It's just he was announced on the ballot this year. He'll go into the Hall. Of- oh, Tim Raines. Tim Raines is my favorite player of all time. He's got a chance. He's it's not going to happen this year, but he should be in there. Of course. Do you vote for the Hall of Fame? Not yet. You have to be you have to be a member of something called the Baseball Writers Association of America for ten years before you get a Hall of Fame vote. You can vote for awards in the years leading up to it, but not the Hall of Fame. So I became a member. A year ago, I've been a member for one year. I voted for Rookie of the Year this year, for instance, but not the Hall of Fame. I have to wait nine more years. And Tim Raines, one way or another, will be off the ballot in nine years. Okay. We'll not get to vote for him. in or out. Right. Vladimir Guerrero, it's possible I might get to vote for him because he will join the ballot in 2016 or 17. Uh, so the math works out that I would be able to vote for him if he's not in already, which he might be. And he was a great expo as well. Uh, he has a case to actually go in with an expo's cap as opposed to an angel's cap. It's another story. Anyway. So, um, yeah, so I guess the final question was, I'm a Cubs fan. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. We had a triple A farm team, the Iowa Cubs. So Andre Dawson was one of my favorite players, Ryan Sandberg, that era. Do you have a good, uh, uh, anecdote from the Hawk, Andre Dawson from the book? I'll make it short and sweet. Um, do you, do you do profanity on your show? I haven't seen Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I have one explicit episode that ha- my guest, he manages Snoop Dogg. Ah. And he dropped the N-bomb a few times. Okay. And so I actually wrote N-bomb, like I wrote N-word in my description, and iTunes flagged it. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> you can't have profanity or words that emulate profanity in your, your description. Right. So I have like one explicit episode, but yeah, d- definitely swear. These are Fs, not Ns. F, F it. So it's a short and sweet story. So Dawson, Dawson's deal was in high school, he was a multi-sport player. A great football player, but he he destroyed his uh, knee in uh, high school. He got basically hit head on with a helmet right above the pad, and uh, it was kind of the knee leading up to the quad area, and just it messed him up. And he couldn't walk properly, and so he was a low. He was not a high draft pick, even though he was a very t- talented national athlete. Partly because of this injury, and it always bothered him. He always had problems with this thing. He used to have his knees drained three times a year. And having your knee drained, it's very, you know, it's not a thing that comes up in, in the modern uh, parlance a lot, but it was a big thing, especially in the 80s. Now you would just put, you get arthroscopic surgery. He always had the worst knees. The worst knees. Great athlete. A physical specimen. Like a football player, really. Yeah, and he would work, you know, he'd use Nautilus machines. He used the equivalent, basically weightlifting, and that was not something that was done then, but he did. And uh, a million sit-ups and a million push-ups. The game would end, and he would still be in the weight room for an hour after the game. On like a Friday night, <laughs> he was he was bananas. He was so committed, um, whatever. And uh, you know, the, the trainer would say, "Oh well, uh, you know, if so and so is on the training table, but Andre Dawson walks in, he would kick the person off the training table. It's, it's Hawk's turn. He he gets the whatever because he just they everybody loved him for his perseverance and for playing hurt and for being so good while playing hurt. He was just so determined to make a career of it. He, he just had an incredible work ethic." And Bill Lee, the spaceman, Bill Lee is one of the most, a pretty good pitcher, I wouldn't say a great pitcher, but one of the most eclectic uh, baseball players of the last 50 years. Um, 
he would famously say that he uh, was a big uh, drug user, many different substances, and he, he talked about pot. And what he would say is he sprinkled it on his buckwheat pancakes because when he was running behind buses, that would inure him from the fumes, the buckwheat pancakes <laughs> sprinkled with, with weed. Great okay. Image. Great, great image. Sure. So I asked Billy about Andre Dawson. That's what you do. You talk to teammates about other teammates. I asked Billy about Andre Dawson. And he said that he admired Dawson more than anything. That Dawson was not a vocal leader, but he always felt that he was the leader of that team. And he said, how could you not give it to Dawson? His fucking knees look like fucking Frankenstein's fucking face. <laughs> and I just thought, that's perfect. That's good. That's my money quote. I'm using that. Made, made, made the, the book. book. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. I love it. No, profanity is in the right circumstances. I don't go blue, you know, but uh, that was great. Thank you for the story. And uh, thank you for your time. Up, up, and away is available now. The extra 2% still available. And actually, it's, it's, you think it's, I would say it's still relevant as far as stats. And was it Friedman? Now is it with the Dodgers? So you can learn more about his backstory. Um, and Joe Madden with the Cubs. And Joe Madden with the Cubs. Yeah. How do you think he's going to do? Oh, I think it'll do great. That's my favorite chapter of that whole book. And it was the first chapter that I wrote. Basically, the day that I sat out of my reporting, I went to a town called Hazleton, Pennsylvania. That's right. And it's from, and I spent the day there. And everybody in Hazleton not only knew Madden, but was like directly related to him. The mayor played Little League with him. I mean, it was it was bananas. I spent, I had dinner with his sister. I had lunch with his mom. Uh, I went to his sister's house and hung out. Just everybody I would talk to, they oh, this person grew up with Joe and Joe stories and Joe, 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 Joe. And uh, he was great. And he really did an excellent job with the Rays. And he has that combination of good in-game skills where he can, you know, when to bond, when not to, blah, blah, blah. And also how to manage a clubhouse. He reads psychology books and he cares deeply about his players. And, and uh, you know, he doesn't – It's he's not a strict disciplinarian, but if you don't hustle to first, he'll bench you. And uh, he's got it all, man. He's a complete package. There's a reason that he's a coveted commodity. I'm excited to have him on as a Cubs manager. So, cool. Well, thank you, Jonah. Appreciate it. And everyone would definitely check out your podcast as well since you're still doing it at Greatland. Thanks very much. All right, take it easy. That was Jonah Carey. Really enjoyed having him on the show. One of my favorite episodes. I know I always say my last episode was my favorite, uh, but I mean it every time. It was a pleasure having him on because he's such a nice guy, really smart, articulate. Uh, what stuck with me is that he had a quote about, you know, someone's watching you somewhere if you're writing or you're podcasting and you're waiting for your big break. Someone is out there and they're waiting to potentially hire you. I also liked his view on luck about how um, luck is, is designed. So you work hard and you have a baseline level of skill, then luck is definitely something that you can manufacture on your own. So please check us out at InfluencerEconomy.com. have some really good episodes coming up in the next few weeks during the holidays. And on iTunes, please leave a review. I'd love it if you subscribe as well. And make sure uh, you listen. And make sure you can, uh, and you can always email me, InfluencerEconomy at gmail.com. Without, uh, heading over to Duke Zeberts for some chicken in the pot.